This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 13, Does God Exist? Part 4. In the past three episodes we did about God's existence, you may have noted that they progress from the most certain to the less certain. For example, the arguments that I presented, given by St. Thomas Aquinas, are considered demonstrations. They're necessarily true because the premises are true and the logic is valid. Those that came after tended to be also very convincing, but not necessarily true. For example, the ones based on scientific premises or scientific evidence that supports the premises are always open to modification or change because science is always changing and progressing. I just noticed uh, apologies for the audio now because it's raining very hard outside, so there's nothing I can do about it. Anyway, the arguments for God's existence that we'll present in this episode are not demonstrations in a strict sense. They don't necessarily prove God's existence, but they are very, very persuasive nonetheless because they also spring from our experience. Remember, the moral argument for God's existence is persuasive precisely because it meshes, it corresponds with our individual experience. These arguments are some of the arguments listed in a book that uh, I would recommend it's called Handbook of Christian Apologetics. It came out in the mid-90s. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's a quite a popular book. Um, it's by the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft, whom I've mentioned before. So let's go with the, the first argument here, which is called The Argument from Desire. And this is something that was popularized by C.S. Lewis, someone else whom I've mentioned. You might remember uh, me recommending his book, Mere Christianity. And he puts the argument from desire like this. This is in Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 10. Quote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A dolphin wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. End quote. So that's pretty clear, but to just uh, put it in other words, everything that we desire naturally has an object of its fulfillment. Like he said, we hunger or thirst, there are objects that exist that correspond to those desires and fulfill them. But there's a distinction to be made between innate desires or natural desires and external or artificial desires. For example, just because you desire to be a professional athlete it doesn't mean that you can really do that. Or just because you desire a, a unicorn doesn't mean that you can satisfy that desire with a unicorn. Those are external or artificial desires. The first set of desires are internal. They're natural. Every human being has these desires, and those desires can be fulfilled by realities that exist. It seemed like it would be a cruel joke for God to create us with desires that can't be fulfilled, innate desires that can't be fulfilled. It would be a cruel joke to create the pain of hunger the desire of hunger without the reality of food. So towards the end, he says, but I find in myself some desire that can't be fulfilled in this world, a desire that uh, transcends or exceeds anything in this world's ability to fulfill it. 
you may have heard this argument put in a way that we almost have like an infinite, infinitely deep hole in us that can't be fulfilled. This hole in our soul or in our will or in our desires that can't be satisfied by any number of these things or any amount of these things, any consumption of these things over a, a long, long time. In fact, we find the opposite to be true, especially in the lives of, you know, the rich and famous who have the ability and the power to satisfy their desires in a way that none of us can. And yet, oftentimes, they, they seem to be the ones that recognize in their lives because of, you know, depression or sadness or just a life of dissolution. They seem to be examples of or proofs of this. Nothing in this world can satisfy this infinite desire for happiness or peace or love that we all have within us. And therefore, since we all have that desire, it points to the reality of some infinite good that can fulfill that desire. That infinite good does not exist in this world. Therefore, there must be an infinite good in the next world or another world. Now, this argument isn't implying that all human beings have a conscious desire for an infinite good or a conscious desire for God, but just pointing to the reality of our desires exceeding the goods of this world. This belongs to every human being, and therefore we have a natural desire which must have the object to fulfill it, and therefore God exists. The second argument is very brief. You may find it very convincing or very unconvincing, but it's called the argument from aesthetic experience. That is the experience of beauty. And the argument is basically, as Kraft puts it, the music of Bach or the music of Mozart exists, therefore God exists. Now we might kind of chuckle at that as an argument because it's not really an argument. It doesn't have premises and lead to a conclusion in any clear way. But if we step back and think about it, think about our experiences of beauty, don't you think there have been moments where you experience some beautiful work of art, some beautiful piece of music, some beautiful scene in nature, and just intuitively understand that there is something that transcends the material world, that there is some artist, that there is some higher intelligence that created us in order to enable us to both experience beauty and to produce beautiful things that move us very deeply and profoundly. I know of people that have started their road to belief in God or started their road to conversion simply by experiencing a beautiful choral piece of music or stepping into a beautiful church and just being overwhelmed with the realization, however vague it might be, that there exists something transcendent. So we'll just leave that one as it is because Crave says you either see this one or you don't. The next argument is called the argument from religious experience. And this is an argument based on just the probability of taking all of the people throughout history that have claimed some kind of real religious experience that wasn't uh, explicable in other ways. From ancient times up until modern times, you have examples of this. Many people, not crazy people, very credible and rational and intelligent people, people that are virtuous and moral, claiming to have experienced something transcendent or supernatural or divine. Taking all of the that whole weight of evidence throughout history and across cultures, the diversity of people who claim such experience, is it more likely that they were all deceived or that there is something that exists that they experienced? Again, this is just an argument from probability, obviously. And it doesn't even need to take into account people that you might consider crazy. I'm sure there are plenty of crazy people that are religious that wouldn't be reliable or that might deceive. But also you have plenty of crazy uh, atheists as well. So it's kind of a, a draw on that score. But the number of people 
that have claimed such experience is overwhelming, credible people. Therefore, the argument is, it seems likely that they did experience something. And the next argument is very similar. It's called the argument from common consent. And the argument basically says, throughout all of history, you have pretty much every culture, every people, every civilization being religious in some way or another. Of course, this takes many forms from ancient times up until modern times. And it's only in modern times where you have cultures that are explicitly or claim to be explicitly atheistic or at least agnostic on the question of God. But again, taking the weight of the experience of humanity throughout its entire existence, it's 99.9% .9 of people agreed and believed that there was a God or gods, some kind of divine being, some power that transcended the material world, something that lived outside of our world. Some of these beliefs very primitive, some of them very elegant and beautifully explained. But nevertheless, the common consent of humanity over time is that yes, there is the divine, there is the supernatural. Is it likely that our small sliver of recent history is correct over the experience of the rest of human history? Are we so arrogant as to believe that because we have all this technology and all this science that somehow that has nullified the belief and experience of all of the rest of human history? We tend to think that what comes later is always better, that modern society is more wise and, and smarter than past societies, but that reasoning has no basis. Technology progresses, yes, but sometimes in a negative way. It has negative impacts. That means we're not necessarily wiser. We're not necessarily smarter or better informed about the world. I would take a 12-year-old from the 13th century up against a millennial nowadays. You ask them simply to speak about the world, to speak about culture and humanity and literature. My money's on the kid from the 13th century. There also is a tendency to uncritically accept the, the claim that science has disproven God. First of all, best thing to do when someone says that is ask for the proofs. The second thing to note is that, in principle, that's not possible. Science does not deal with the realm that could possibly disprove God. Science deals with measuring natural phenomena, explaining them, finding the causes of natural phenomena through their experience and testing and things like that. God as defined, God as we learn of him through the demonstrations, is something that transcends the material world. Therefore, it's outside the purview of science. Usually what people mean when they say science has disproven God is that science explains a lot of things that people in the past didn't know about, but you'll remember that's called God of the gaps. It assumes that believers think God exists simply because they can't explain some kind of natural phenomenon, and that's not the case. You have a lot of people in the science community that might be prominent scientists riding the wave of their popularity and credibility in science into the realm of something they know nothing about. For some reason, people think that the philosophical statements or claims of scientists are somehow as credible as their scientific claims. You know, nowadays people say, stay in your own lane. That's exactly what needs to happen with such people because among the new atheists, you have people like this. You even had someone like the, the late Stephen Hawking, who was brilliant, but made such terrible philosophical claims such as the universe caused itself, which violates the very first rule of logic, something that you learn in Logic 101. You have Sam Harris saying that heaven doesn't exist because, come on, we have all these space telescopes and they're not picking up anything. So when people claim that science has disproven God, there's usually nothing behind that statement that actually backs up their belief in that. So human beings tend to be naturally religious. That's the 
implication of the common consent argument that we have this natural religiosity and even people that claim that they're not religious um, or that they're spiritual, not religious, really do find some kind of religious ritual to carry out in their lives. People that deny that God exists, they usually tend to find some other object of worship. Not that they are conscious of the fact that they're worshiping, but in effect, they're doing something that's pretty much the same as what a believer in God would do, ordering their whole lives around some particular thing, uh, changing their habits to appease some certain thing or fad or celebrity or whatever. So we are naturally religious in the sense that we naturally are inclined to make something an object of our worship. And even when we deny the true object of our worship, that is God, we usually fill in that space with something else. Like, oh, religious people are so dumb. I can't believe they do the things they do. Also, I would die for this celebrity. That's the kind of mentality you have people nowadays. So taking all of this into account, we move to our last, not so much a proof as a, a thought experiment that most people are familiar with called Pascal's Wager. This was articulated by the French philosopher Blaise Pascal. And basically the argument is, if you're not sure about God's existence, if you don't find all of these demonstrations or any of these demonstrations worthwhile or credible, you should probably consider your options and weigh, do a cost-benefit analysis. So if you believe God exists and he does exist, then you can be rewarded with eternal life. If you believe God exists and he doesn't exist, well, then that's, that's the end of things, you know? You don't really lose anything. If you don't believe God exists, but he does exist, then the implication is your life after this life will not be a pleasant one. And if you don't believe God exists and he doesn't exist, then you're in the same boat as the person who does believe God exists, but he doesn't exist. That is nothing lost. But the difference between the two outcomes, if God does exist, should be enough for you to place your bet on God's existence and live accordingly. Now, we shouldn't be really just making a bet, and Pascal didn't intend it that way either, but he's showing how we ought to consider our lives given the possibility of heaven. You stand to gain everything if you believe God exists, and you lose nothing if you believe he exists but he doesn't. Whereas you lose everything if you don't believe God exists and it turns out that he does. This is mainly just to point out the foolishness of the one who doesn't really seek to know God's existence, the one who doubts but also doesn't try to resolve that doubt, and how much he's putting on the line, how much he's risking by, by living in that way. And there are plenty of people who are in this category, so this could be a first step, a way to prompt or to spark someone on the path to searching for the truth. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. If you find these podcasts helpful, please subscribe or follow at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also visit my Patreon, patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief to become a member to help support this podcast and to have access to special content. God bless.